Well, it had been a rough game, trailing nearly all the way, down by double digits, just a few minutes left, and I pick up my fourth foul, and I have to go plot myself on the bench, and I bury my head in my towel. This was not how our season was supposed to end. But, unlike the game last night, there was a turnover, we hit a few shots, and we start to rally back there toward the end of the fourth quarter. And you could feel the, the gym come back alive, tensions rising as, as hometown fans watched their team and that lead slowly slip away. You could feel them trying to will them back to victory, but it wouldn't be so that day. Down to the wire it came, the final possession I cut from baseline to the top of the key, take a pass from the point guard, turn, shoot, but I got fouled. Go to the line, down by one, about one second left in the game, and I get two shots. You know what it's like in those moments? Those are those moments as a child, right, you've prepared for, you've dreamed of moments like this, you've been in the backyard or there in the, in the driveway shooting at night, hoping you get just such a chance. The gym is hushed in silence, all eyes on me as the ref tosses the ball, two dribbles, let the first one go, whoosh. The crowd behind me, right, the bench, they jump up, at least at a minimum we are going into OT, but even not that would be the case. I got back up, took that second shot, and I nailed the second one, and we win. And that was my moment of great fame. The improbable comeback. We had won the game. And frankly, you know what? It felt pretty good in that moment to be in the spotlight. To be there to hear my teammates and those out in the crowd chanting my name. It, it felt quite nice. Fame, my friends. Fame. In our own ways, we all long for fame. We dream of it. And it may not have been on a basketball court for you. Perhaps the, the fame that you dream of, maybe that comes in the form of a particular college acceptance letter. Maybe that's the fame you're holding out for. Or, or one day having your name on a book cover. Or maybe you dream of a, ascending to some public office or, or owning a successful business that carries your name. Or maybe you, you long for a, a large and Happy family with children and, and even grandchildren scurrying about bearing your own name. Friends, in a million different ways, we long for fame. We desire it. We pursue it. It's often our life's quest. And yet, what happens when we get it? Is fame all that it's cracked up to be? Friends, to help us think through these things, I want to invite you to turn back in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes. If you don't have a Bible, we provide them for you there, and the seat backs, you should find our text uh, on page 553. You can open there, page 553, the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, we've been in this book the last two weeks, but just in case you've missed, as a reminder, Ecclesiastes fall. It falls in the Bible's wisdom literature, and as we've noted, the, the point of wisdom literature is to reveal to us, really to teach us, the art of, of living well in God's world. It's all about the art of living well in God's world. And Job does it from that perspective of someone who's lost it all, like how do we live then? Ecclesiastes does it rather from the perspective of someone who has it all. And you see Solomon, as we've witnessed these last two weeks, he's a lot like us. 
Solomon has assumed that life's pleasure and happiness and contentment, all that was lacking, that void in his heart, Solomon assumed that that void could be filled by the things of this world. And so he threw himself at the world. Power and pleasure and possessions, whatever his heart desired, whatever he thought he needed to fill that void, he filled it. The best the world could offer. He bathed in it, denying himself nothing. Well, did it deliver? Right? That's what Ecclesiastes is about. It's a memoir of sorts, reflecting back on the pursuits this teacher, the pursuits of a misspent life. Fun? He says, oh, I can, I can tell you stories, and stories that I can't share publicly. Fortune? Yes, I've walked that path too. Look around me. I've obviously got money to burn. But there's a third door we're going to take this morning, door number three. He hasn't walked through this door yet. This is the door of fame, the door of popularity and great acclaim. Here's one door he hasn't cracked And this morning, he's going to lead us through it together. Because who among us wouldn't want to be both rich and famous? Right? Sign me up. You you fill that void with fame. We will do it. And will, though, the question is, will it deliver the goods? Again, that's what we want to think about this morning. And recall, because Ecclesiastes really isn't written in in a linear fashion, Because he's going back and forth as he makes his argument, not sort of building so much as he is circling like a funnel round and around. Let's think about fun. Let's think about fortune. Let's think about fame. Let's think about these things. Because he goes round and round, we've been thinking through it thematically. Hence the topic of fame this morning. Door number three. Three things I want us to see as we go through Ecclesiastes on this theme. First, fame is deceiving. Fame is deceiving. Secondly, fame is corrupting. It's corrupting. And third, fame is fleeting. It is fleeting. So just giving you the points right up front. It's deceiving, it's corrupting, and it's fleeting. So first, let's think about fame is deceiving. Firstly, fame is deceiving. Look down with me, chapter 1, verse 12. Look down with me if you would in your Bibles. Chapter 1, verse 12 of Ecclesiastes. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart is a great experience of wisdom and of knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. We'll stop there. So here we have Solomon, and he heads off to university. He seeks to make a name for himself through wisdom and through knowledge. Notice what he says in verse 16, how he surpasses all who were over Jerusalem before me. So Solomon was the kind of student who'd walk into class and take a seat, and the teachers would instinctively smile, and his fellow students would sneer. 
Because this was the guy who, who crushed every exam, who set every curve. Again, the teachers loved him and all the students envied him. The end of the day, he's going to graduate summa cum laude. He's going to become a Rhodes Scholar. He's going to make much of himself. Right? Every academic achievement, every set of letters that he could acquire before his name, these all piled up in his pursuits. And yet, what was the result, he says? Verse 18. For in much wisdom is much vexation, as in frustration. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Now wait, wait right here. This is not what we would expect Solomon to say. We strive to get into the best schools because we assume in getting into those best schools that that will ensure our future happiness and, and our bliss and certainly business prospects down the road. I mean, isn't that why the Thaden School is opening up in Bentonville? Isn't that why they've hired a bunch of former Ivy League directors? Isn't that why they've set it up there in Bentonville, the children of Walmart and other execs? So, to quote from their website, students have the best chance to succeed in college and life. You know, when you're paying up to 26 grand per kid per year, certainly you're expecting something out of it, some reward. And yet he says, you know what? The more degrees, the more despair. What gives? Well, once again, Solomon has just popped another one of life's bubbles. Those things we invest meaning and significance in. He's popped another one. Because he thought happiness, and he assumed meaning, was something that could be obtained merely through books and through information and through advanced degrees. And yet when he says there in verse 15... What is crooked cannot be made straight. What he's recognizing is that there's no amount of education, no amount of knowledge that can fix the brokenness of this world. Nothing can fix that. More education he's coming to find, that's actually not the solution. So yes, he could pursue a PhD in psychology and, and maybe that would help him explain why he does what he does but it can't cure him from the things that he does. You know, you could pursue a degree, a PhD in astrophysics, and that may help you explain what's out there, but it gets you no closer to understanding why all of us are here. Now, I don't know about you, but I know that in my own life, the more degrees I've pursued, the more acutely aware I've been at all the things I don't know. All the questions I still have, even more doors of questions and questions. You know, as a nation, we've amassed more degrees than any other generation ever before us. Yet, are we better off? Are we any happier? Are, are, our, natures, are our natures actually any different as a result of it? That's not to say there's no value in education, but all of the knowledge in the world, Solomon is saying, doesn't fill that void and can't finally bring meaning to life. That's why he says, verse 12, that it's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Literally, it is, he says, an unhappy business. You know, there were some researchers out of, out of Britain a few years ago, and they expected to find that the more education one had, the more happiness they would come to find in life that higher education brought about a higher quality of life. 
And yet Time Magazine reported their findings a few years ago. And much to the researcher's surprise, it turns out you can't find meaning and happiness rolled up in a diploma. It's just not there. What does all of our education teach us but to quote Richard Dawkins, that our existence is neither good nor evil, kind nor cruel, but simply callous, indifferent to all suffering, lacking all purpose. Now that's a little darker even than our own teacher here, but you see and you hear some of the similarities. Sheer knowledge alone, it promises answers to life's great questions, but it often can't deliver on those questions. Now, that's not to say, again, wisdom and knowledge and education aren't useful. Not at all. He's going to go on in chapter 2 to extol the value of wisdom. He'll talk about chapter 3, chapter 7. He's just helping us see right at the get-go fame that we might pursue through the academy. That's a lost cause. It won't bring what we so desire. It's not the solution. We think it often is. Whether we go back to John Dewey in the early 20th century or Common Core programs in this century, We think the basic problems of our lives, perhaps at least of society, can be solved by curing ourselves of ignorance, giving ourselves a better, a more thorough education. Friend Solomon is helping us see, no, that's a deception. It won't work. Education alone can't straighten what is broken. Knowledge alone can't take those broken pieces of our lives, and through it we can't put them together. We can't make them add up. Such attempts, he says, are vanity. A striving after the wind. But friends, we see fame's deception, I think, in another way in in Ecclesiastes. Jump forward, all the way forward to chapter 9. Look forward with me, chapter 9, verse 11. Chapter 9, verse 11. Stepping out of the classroom and entering into sort of the, the broader class of life. Now, we like to assume that we live in a in a meritocracy. Right, where people are rewarded for their talent and for their intelligence and for their efforts. Right, they get rewarded on that basis. And thus when we succeed, when we make a name for ourselves, we believe that we're owed the kudos, right? that we should get the credit. And yet we come to chapter 9, verse 11, and we read our sage who says, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, Nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Apparently, life isn't a meritocracy, right? Though we think so, we wish it were so, human ability, he's saying, is no guarantee of success. Not to bring up a sore subject, but you know what? The saints should have been in the Super Bowl. They weren't there. You know, the 1980 U.S. hockey team, Miracle on Ice, Herb Brooks, the coach, said, you know what? We shouldn't have won. The Russians were faster, better, bigger, stronger. Nine times out of ten, they would beat us. Just not that night. If you haven't figured it out yet, there are a lot of poor, smart people, and there are a lot of rich, dumb people. Because the race doesn't always go to the swift 
or the battle to the strong or riches to the intelligent. But as he says, time and chance happens to them all. And this is where fame deceives us. It's where it deceives us, whether it's the fame in the academy or, or at work or in the accomplishments that we accrue in our own friend networks. Maybe even the strength and depth of our own faith this morning. We think that much of that actually lies within our control, that we can take credit for it, like we've accomplished it and we've achieved it. And yet our teachers is saying, hey, look, wait, step back, consider things a bit more carefully. We are products of circumstance, of our surroundings, products of our time. There are trillions of variables that have led you to be who you are today and whatever success and fame you know. And often, some of those most important things are those things that were least in your control. The DNA of your parents, what your mom did or didn't do while she was pregnant with you the country you were born into, the medical attention you received, the emotional care were you read to in the womb. All these things have an effect upon who you are, and all of that happened before you even took your first breath. Take Matthew Brady, widely considered to be the father of photojournalism, picture of Lincoln on the $5 bill right after his work, very talented, tremendously gifted. And during the Civil War, he spent much of his fame and talent and resources, nearly hundred grand, into capturing the truly unspeakable tales of horror and heroism in the war. And yet, you know what? By the time the war was over, the nation was exhausted and they had no interest in his work. The best he could do was sell what now are considered amazing photos, some of the most remarkable photos certainly we have of the war, sold them for a mere $2,000. And he died, penniless, an alcoholic, though his work is still revered today. You can say the same for Van Gogh or William Blake or Edgar Allan Poe or Stephen Foster, all tremendously gifted and yet died either in poverty or obscurity. And then you take someone like Bonnie Brown, a woman coming off a rough divorce, struggling to find a job, didn't have a lot of marketable skills, and she finally lands a part-time job as a masseuse. She's a masseuse. Company doesn't have a lot of cash, can just pay her a couple hundred a week, so they offer her some stock options. At wit's end, she's got no other thing, no other options cooking, so she's got to take it, and reluctantly she does, only to find that company she's just joined is Google. She's now worth 10 million. Point is, we like to believe our successes or our failures are ours, or at least the fault of another's. And maybe that's true in, in some distant sense. But, but how much can a model really take credit for her beauty, or an athlete his arm, or a scholar her mind? So often, we're just punching above our weight in such things because there is another hand at work, that hand behind time, that hand behind chance. Friend, I wonder if you've stopped to thank God for whatever success you've achieved in this life, however you might define it. Have you stopped and ever said, you know, if you're a child, hey, you know what, God, thank you for my parents. They aren't perfect, I know that, but they seek to love me and protect me and they feed me and they try to teach me things? Have you ever stopped and said, Lord, thank you that I was born into a land of plenty, that I've been given opportunities, when there are 1.3 billion people in the world born into poverty? 
Thank you for siblings and friends who have my back, however annoying sometimes those siblings and friends can be. Or thank you for my church and how it seeks to care for me, however frustratingly sort of fallen some of these brothers and sisters can be. Thank you for the person who shared the gospel with me, because without them, however imperfect or however they stumbled through, without that person sharing the gospel, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be a Christian. Friends, fame in any form is deceiving because, of course, it promises what it can't deliver, but it also convinces us we are responsible for what we can't control. But a second thing we need to consider, fame is corrupting. It's corrupting. Look back with me to chapter 4. Turn back chapter 4. Look at verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne. Though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, of all whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. And right here, what do you have? You have your classic rags to riches story. The man who rose from obscurity to royalty, from poverty, and now he's become a potentate. And who is this person? Maybe it's King David. David certainly rose from obscurity to royalty. That does describe him. Of course, it references a prison. Maybe that's metaphorically speaking of the time that David was on the run having to hide in caves. We don't know. Maybe it's a reference to Joseph. Maybe it's to someone that's not recorded for us in the Bible. We're not sure. But just notice at the pinnacle of this king's reign, notice what is said about him. There is no end of all the people, of all whom he led. See, what's being pictured there is is great power and prestige of royalty. and, And no doubt along with that royalty and all of those people, great riches. So this would be a king who led out in grand parades and then was led back and even to grander palaces. And of all the people, given his humble origins, his humble origins of all the kings, certainly this king would remember his roots. Certainly this king, fame wouldn't spoil him. Fame wouldn't get to him. But notice in verse 13 how it describes him as an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. You see, it had spoiled him. It had corrupted him. The position had made him proud. All that popularity, all that prominence that he had arisen to went to his head. And he was now, he was, what is he, pompous and imperious. And he was all of these things, stubborn. And friends, that's the corrupting influence of fame. Because we actually start to believe what others say about us. Deep down, we're like, that can't really be true, but it sounds so good to hear and we believe it. We think it's true. You know, there was a Republican, Aaron Schock, became the youngest member of Congress at about 23 years old. Time magazine would rank him as one of the most influential millennials of our era. 
And he was a firm believer that to be successful in politics, you had first to be noticed. So he worked hard to, to fan the flames of his newfound fame. And he would appear on the Colbert Report, where Stephen Colbert would grill him about his six-pack abs. He donned the cover of Men's Health, quickly becoming selected by the Huffington Post as, as the hottest, hottest incoming freshman in that, in that class. He only encouraged the constant media barrage, leading the New York Times to finally quip about this incoming politician. He's cultivated an image that is clearly more about lifestyle and less about lawmaking. You know, it all went to his head. He believed the hype. He began to live in lavish luxury. He redecorated his offices after Downton Abbey like he was an earl. Elaborate trips to all support this new image. But then came, of course, the inevitable congressional investigation. And just like that, boom, he is out of office. And my guess is 10 years later, you don't even recognize his name. Friends, that's what fame does. It corrupts us. We start to believe the hype. As we strive after glory, as we begin to taste that glory, somewhere along the way, we're deceived into thinking that we're the cause, that there's something different about me, something that places me above others in a superior category to others because people respect and admire and they look up to me. Because at the end of the day, we all long to be worshipped. Oh, we'd never say it, but we do. We want to be worshipped even if just a little bit. Because at the end of the day, we long to be God. We long to make the decisions. We long to have others respect and approve of us. And so fame, well, it gives us what we long for. It treats us like a God, like we've somehow transcended this two-bit, under-the-sun world, and we, for just a moment, have become immortal. Even if but for a moment, we've now become like God. And who needs says this old king, the puny advice of others who have not walked in my shoes, who don't know what I know, who needs their advice when I've risen to such great heights? And yet it's often in such moments that we come to suffer that sudden and severe crash landing back to reality, right? That was Shock's experience. Friend, if you're not careful, that could be your own experience, could be yours. I mean, what about you, husband and father? Are you too proud to hear the advice and counsel of your wife, of your children? What about you who employ and oversee others? Are you too proud to solicit and to receive the, the advice and any of the correction that, of those who might work for you, work under you? What about you if you're popular among all of your, your friend groups? Maybe they're high school groups, maybe they're college groups. If you're seen as the influential one among all your classmates, the one that others look up to, is your head beginning to swell to the size of that dangerous balloon that God is going to have to pop? Friends, pray for me. Pray for me. Because have we not seen this very thing happening at our own convention the past few weeks? Some of the most revered leaders exposed as those who are too proud to hear and to receive advice. Even this week, another prominent pastor of a large and very successful church, a guy who toured the speaking circuits, who's 
spoken at the National, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention for the past few years. This one, held up as a leader and as a model, fired this Wednesday because this kind of fame got into his head. He thought he was deserving of it. But it's not just him. Others so concerned about protecting their name and their reputation that they went at great lengths to conceal sin, to even cover up sexual abuse in their own churches as Wes was so helpfully praying for us in that pastoral prayer. Did we not read such tragic stories in that Houston Chronicle report of last week? Friends, the corrupting effects of pride. Friends, pray that God would keep me from such pride. Because it doesn't take a national following to fall prey to pride. It doesn't. And give praise to God for the plurality of elders that we have here at UBC. Because that's what a properly functioning elder board does. That board of shared spiritual authority. That shared spiritual authority ought to prevent one of the elders from beginning to operate like a lord in his own fiefdom. That's how it's meant to operate. So pray for my humility and pray for the other elders and for the right exercise of their own authority. Because fame, my friends, it corrupts so often it does. And those crash landings back to reality, oh friends, they are never pretty. They are never pretty. Now some of you, you'll have to go back in your memories a bit. Some of you may know the, the movie Fame, released back in 1980, actually won a few Academy Awards, including Best Original Song, beat out Dolly Parton's 9 to 5. I'll leave that judgment in your minds. I'm not going to comment on that. But if you know that song that won an Academy Award, it has this refrain in it, feel it coming together, people will see me and cry, fame, I'm going to make it to heaven. Light up the sky like a flame. Fame. I'm going to live forever. Baby, remember my name. At the end of the day, isn't that the promise of fame? That others remember our name? And yet, isn't that also the very problem with fame? That they won't. That in fact, they don't. Because the third thing we need to see is that fame is fleeting. Fame is fleeting. We want to think we're going to get, live forever and that they'll remember our names. And yet, what did we not just see from that passage we read in chapter 4? Of this king, of whom there was no shortage of parades that would have been thrown in his honor. To a man who couldn't rise any higher, to a man who couldn't become any more popular. What do we read about the conclusion of his reign in chapter 4, verse 16? Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Right, that's brutal. All he sought. Toward what end? Because it says they won't rejoice in him. It won't be long before they won't even remember him anymore. Friends, popularity and public approval, however you seek it, recognize that is as fickle as the wind. One day it blows in this direction, the next day it blows in another without any warning, this way and that. I mean, we see it in politics, we've already thought about it, how quickly some rise and fall. So even in names like Beto O'Rourke or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, so famous now she just goes by AOC and everyone knows who we're talking about. Where were these people too? Even just one year ago, we didn't know their names. 
Now their household names. Where will they be next year? Where will they be 10 years from now? Will we even recognize these names? Or they sound to our ears like Endershaw. In music, you know, there's a reason we call them one-hit wonders. You know, when was the last time you thought about Tony Basil's Mickey? Or Nana's, Nana's 99 Left Balloons? Or Safety Dance by Men Without Hats? Some of you are chuckling because you know the only reason that you remember those songs is because one day you were wearing Z Cavaricis on a very awkward 1980s dance floor. And some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, either the musical references or the fashion references. And friend, that's my point. We don't remember them, even though for a season everyone knew these names. Tony Danza, Corey Feldman, the entire cast of Friends. Friends, how often do we think about these people anymore? Carly Rae Jepsen, call me maybe, right? Just to try to reach a little closer. Something more recent. She rocketed to fame this decade. Nominated for two Grammys, best song of the year. But most of you, I say that name, you're like, Carly Rae Jepsen, I don't, I, do I know who that is? Yes, you do. You probably heard the song. I hope you don't sing it the rest of the sermon in your head. You know, the French Napoleon, uh, French General Napoleon, I should say, he was, as you well know, no stranger to fame. I think he may have put it best. Glory is fleeting. Obscurity is forever. From the words of Napoleon, glory is fleeting, obscurity is forever. That's the hard lesson our teacher wants us to learn. So look back with me, uh, turn forward again, back to chapter 9. Back to chapter 9. We looked at verses 11 and 12. But go forward with me to chapter 9, just past verse 12. Look with me at verse 13. Look with me at verse 13. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. Right, the city's clearly doomed. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. So this opens and it sounds like we again have this wonderful rags to riches story of someone who rises out of obscurity and is going to become king, royalty. This poor man single-handedly delivered an entire city. We're not told how, simply that he did it. This is the stuff that Hollywood loves. This is what you make reputations on. This is how your name lives in infamy. Surely the city threw parades in honor of this man. They erected a statue in honor of this man, at least declared a national holiday in honor of this man. But we read in verse 15, no one remembered that poor man. No one. The injustice of it all to accomplish so much And yet to be remembered so little. How fickle though. How fleeting is fame, my friends. Just even look back with me, chapter 2, verse 12. Look back at me, chapter 2, verse 12. You know, we've reflected on the limits of academic prowess and success. We already saw that toward the end of chapter 1. 
chapter 2, verse 12, after thinking for a, lit, for a bit about possessions and fun and all the pleasures of this world, we read in chapter 2, verse 12, So I turn to consider wisdom here again. Madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has been done. Then I saw there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. And then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool, so I hated life. Because of what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Sure, wisdom is better than folly, and yet he's saying, you know what? Death comes to us all, and no amount of letters before our name can keep us from the grave. And then he says, what will be our fame? 2.16, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that the days to come will all have been long forgotten, right? And you see what's happened? We are right back to where we were in chapter 1. He's going to say the same thing in chapter 9. This is that cycle that keeps recurring right back to the beginning. Whether you're the hero of the city or the hero in the academy, it all ends the same. You will die and you will be forgotten. Right back to Ecclesiastes. And that hits us like a ton of bricks because we want to believe that what we does matters, that we can make a difference, that we can and can in some way forever change the world. We can, we can leave it a better place, that our contributions matter, that our lives matter, that we can leave some enduring mark upon the world. We want to believe we can do it. And yet the teacher's saying, really? Are you so sure? Because death has this way of leveling us all. And time has this way of quietly eroding our legacies. It was Charles de Gaulle, a famous man in his own right, who once observed that the graveyards are full of indispensable men. The graveyards, full of indispensable men. Because one day, if the Lord tarries, you too will be stuffed into a box covered by six feet of dirt. And some will visit your grave for a season, and the grass around it will be worn. But the time will come when those visits become less frequent, when they even become non-existent. And the grass will grow, and the generations will pass, and before long, no one will even know who you are. And a day will come when a child will pass by your grave, A grave that's now weathered by time, weathered by neglect. And that child will stop momentarily to read your name. And for an instant, their mind will turn, wondering, who was this person? And yet, before they get any further, they'll remember, you know what, I'm hungry. I need my snack. I think my mom has some goldfish and some warm processed cheese. And you'll be passed over for that. 
It's humorous, but that's exactly what he's saying. That is our lot in life. He's not a defeatist. He is a realist, though, because death is that great leveler. It's the brutal reminder that we are not God. We never were. We never will be. We were never meant to be God. Death is the reminder that that our fame has an expiration date and our names will pass on into obscurity. But friends, we can't leave it there because there is one name that doesn't. There is one name we read that is above every name. There is that one name that won't be forgotten because there is that one name for whom you can't find it on a gravestone because he is not there. Friends, that's the name of Jesus Christ. The one who was also born into great poverty and obscurity just like that king in Ecclesiastes 4. This would be one whom crowds would gather around. People far and wide would bow the knee to him. And yet there would be no parades thrown in his honor, no royal honors conferred upon him, other than mock honors of a a purple robe and a crown of thorns. For this king didn't live for the praise of his people. He lived rather to die for his people. And there on the cross, the perfect king Jesus, the man who lived the perfect life that you and I cannot live, that every day that life that you and I refuse to live, he lived that life and that he died the death that you and I deserve. There on the cross, Jesus died, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, reconcile us back to God. He lived and died not merely to deliver a city, Ecclesiastes 9. He lived and died to deliver humanity. Therefore God exalted him, And bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh friend, recognize. Whether in this life or in the next life, you will bow your knee to this Jesus. You will utter his name. And he either will be your savior or he will be your everlasting judge. There is not another path. There is not another option. Which will you choose? Your name or his name? Your fame or his? You may have wondered, why in the world did you even begin this sermon talking about your own moment of personal glory? You know, down by one at the line, effectively no time on the clock, that 15 seconds of fame. Well, you know, perhaps in that moment it sounded rather grand to you. In the moment it sounded and it felt rather grand to me. And yet looking back upon it now, that fame was utterly laughable. Because what I didn't tell you was that was my freshman year. And I wasn't playing varsity. I didn't make the team. I wasn't even playing JV. I was on the freshman team. Freshman high school. And I wasn't even supposed to get the ball. I was not what you would call an offensive threat. (laughs) I played defense. That was my one role. So when I came to the top of the key and the point guard had nowhere else to go, I assure you the look in his eyes was not, oh, I really want to make this pass. It was, is there anyone else open? Because they knew I had one move, go to the right, into the corner, dribble off my foot. It's the only move I had. It was a botched play of last resort. And yes, it was the last game of the year. 
But that didn't send us to the finals. We had a losing record. That was it anyway. It didn't matter. And even that little reputation that carried over into the next year, you know, the, the guy with ice in his veins who, like, plays water polo who can actually shoot a free throw, you know, I shot not even 60% from the line that next year. Like, all my mojo was gone. Glory days were over. I stuck to the water after that. That was my fame right there. That was it. Friends, whatever you've accomplished, whatever you think you could achieve in this life, it's like that. It is human greatness. It's just a, it's a bauble. It's a joke. It's an utter joke. I was no Jimmy Chitwood. This was no Hoosiers movie, right? Such fame is deceiving. It's corrupting. And it is certainly fleeting. And yet when we live for the fame of his name, fame that we're going to think about even more next week, the consequences of living for that name, now those are consequences that can indeed reverberate through eternity. Friend, whose name are you living for? Whose fame do you seek? Let's pray. God, we give you praise that you speak so honestly to us in your word. You ask us to ponder our grave, to look forward to our death, and in that learn how to live. And God, we pray that we take it to heart. And if there are any ways in which we have wrongly placed our hopes, paltry hopes in this this life and the passing things of this life, oh God, expose us. Drive us to the cross, to that name that finally endures and remains. In Christ's name we pray, amen.